Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, I'm happy to have as a guest the respected historian of sports, Alan Gutman. We are discussing his new book, Sports and American Art, from Benjamin West to Andy Warhol, published in August 2011 by the University of Massachusetts Press. Alan Gutman is the Dean of American Sports Historians. More than three decades after its publication, his book, From Ritual to Record, The Nature of Modern Sports, remains a key text in the field. His list of other publications in sports history is long and varied, as is the list of honors he's received in his career. But, as Alan explains in the interview, his early research work was in European and American literature and cultural history, and he's continued to offer courses in those areas throughout his teaching career. So this book on American sports and American art combines two areas of expertise and two areas of enthusiasm. Alan's writing is lively and insightful, and the book and the interview clearly show a deep knowledge of both topics. A fun part of this job is that I get to talk with really smart people. Alan is one of those people, and it was a great pleasure for me to visit with him. So let's turn to the interview. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we're discussing today your book, Sports and American Art, from Benjamin West to Andy Warhol, which was just released uh, only a few weeks ago. And is my count correct that this is your 11th book on sports history? That's right. So you've had a long and distinguished career writing about sports history. There is a long list of awards that you've received in recognition of your work in the history of sports. But your day job at Amherst is actually teaching literature. And your early research ranged widely in intellectual and literary history. So how did you then come to be a historian of sports? Well, my present teaching is mostly literature, but it's also history. I do American history, and I also have been teaching a course called Romanticism and the Enlightenment, which is about uh, European and American cultural history, so that the move into sports studies wasn't as radical as it might seem. fact is, I was teaching American literature in Germany in 1968-1969 and went to a soccer game at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin and I began to think here are 50,000 Germans and they're absolutely wild about this soccer game and yet it's not a sport that's very popular in the United States. Why Why is it? What's What's the explanation for the, the difference in these sports preferences? Uh, whimsically, I, I put it this way. Why are these Germans playing soccer when they should be out there doing baseball or American <laughs> football? Uh, 
I began to look into this question of uh, the cultural differences between German and American sports. And as I did my research uh, in Germany for the first year, this was 1972, 1973, as I did my research, I became more and more interested in the sports of the of the distant past in Europe. I began to to read uh, about ancient Greek sports, about medieval sports, Renaissance sports. And as I did the research, it dawned on me that the important differences were not between the United States and Germany, but rather between the present and the past. It wasn't a question of here or there, but of 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 now and then. And that led me to do the first of my books on sports, uh, From Ritual to Record, uh, which came out in 1978. And the book, essentially, was an effort to explain uh, the uniqueness of modern sports, uh, doing that by contrasting them with, with uh, sports of, of pre-modern time. So I read in an interview that you've compiled all of the sources you've used in now close to 40 years of sports research. You've compiled all of them into a single bibliography that totals something like 17,000 items. Right now it's uh, more like 18,000. Yes, that's true. So after all of this reading and writing uh, on sports history, uh, can you give your view of how, how the field, the study of the academic study of sports history has developed in, in the last four decades? Yes, I stepped rather naively into a vacuum as far as theory goes, at least in the United States. Sports historians in the United States were actually rather few when I started my research. Among the few, there were a handful of people who did really really good work, but most of the research was, well, the jargon is untheorized. Most of the research was was done with narrative history in mind. And I came along with a a theoretical uh, view, with a a paradigm, uh, which which I drew mainly from the sociology of Max Weber, although not exclusively from there. And I think I think that that was an intervention that that made some difference. Whether it did or not, whether my contribution made a difference or not, I can say that American sports history has moved ahead in in leaps and bounds uh, since the time when I began my research back in 1972, 73. Uh, I think there's a great deal of good uh, history done now, social history, social history of sports. Uh, when I began research, the best work was done in Germany. Germany had a long tradition of very serious, academic, highly sophisticated sports history. The French were far behind, the British were far behind, and I think the Americans were far behind. Uh, well, that's changed. I think Americans are now doing marvelous work, and uh, Thanks largely to a fellow named Thierry Terre, uh, the French are doing uh, marvelous work. He has written and edited a number of books on sports history. The, there has been a, a recent shift in sports history 
from the kind of social history that that I've been doing to what some people characterize as postmodern uh, sports history. Uh, this is a shift to which I am not particularly uh, sympathetic, but um, we're having a discussion, uh, a debate, and there's a a lot of uh, well, a lot of sound and fury about the present direction of sports history in, in the United States and uh, in the rest of the English-speaking world. Well, let's turn to your new book, and I'll, I'll tell listeners to start that this is a handsome book. On the cover is a full-color reproduction of the 1939 painting by Robert Riggs titled The Brown Bomber, which shows Joe Lewis standing over Max Schmeling after having just knocked him to the canvas in their second fight. And, and we see the men at ringside, the photographers, the referee is standing alongside Lewis, making the count. In the background, uh, we see Schmeling's manager, who has just thrown the towel into the air. So is this your choice for a cover, cover image for the book? It's my choice in consultation with my uh, editor, uh, Clark Dugan. We sat down together and we looked at a number of options, and we both agreed that this was the one we wanted. And why did you want that one in particular? Well, I think it's a, a marvelous piece of art, and it charms me that Riggs is a relatively unknown artist. Uh, m- most of the well, most of the art in the book is by well-known artists. Uh, for instance, Winslow Homer and, and Thomas Aikens and George Bellows. And this, this picture is by somebody who, who never was recognized. And I liked, I, liked, I liked the fact that it was a, a wonderful picture and it, we could, in a sense, rescue it from obs- obscurity. <laughs> so the cover art shows a painting of a boxing match, but the book is not limited to a discussion of sports in art. You do discuss how artists have presented subjects from sports and play in their work, but you also look at the parallel histories of sports and art in America since the colonial history, since the colonial period, and you make the case in the book that this is an appropriate approach. So even though the artsy crowd and the athletic crowd are typically disdainful of each other, you say that we can see parallels between art and sports. So how are these two areas of culture similar to each other? Well, that's, that's a difficult question. Let me step back a bit. Uh, when I first imagined this book, I thought of it as a book about um, sports-themed art. Uh, I imagined that I'd work on Homer and Aikens and Bellows and uh, talk about the way that they dealt with sports. But I decided that there were so many similarities in the, in the histories of sports and art in the United States uh, that I should do something more ambitious. Rather than just focus on these sports-themed pictures, I should trace the history of American sports and the history of American art and try to, to highlight the fact that they they do take parallel paths. Um, the, maybe the best example of that is is the colonial period, when uh, in the era of Puritan domination, at any rate, uh, there was real antipathy to both. Uh, the Puritans were very very suspicious of sports. Uh, in fact, when they 
came to power in England, they pretty much uh, forbade all sorts of traditional sports. And similarly, at, in, in the same period, the uh, American Puritans, like the English Puritans, were very suspicious of art. Uh, so we, we, get, we get a kind of parallel story here. Uh, hostility to, to both forms of, uh, of expression. Because I do think of sports as a, as a form of expression, uh, just as the arts. Uh, uh, I can give another example of, of what I see as parallel path. Uh, in the 19th century, the most admired and practiced uh, art form was the landscape, landscape paintings. Uh, I'm speaking of the United States now. Uh, landscape paintings were overwhelmingly uh, the, the most uh, significant aspect of American art in the antebellum period. Uh, well, what about sports? Well, most sports historians have focused on baseball, uh, on the demise of cricket as a popular sport and the rise of baseball. And that's been the main theme. But in fact, in fact, uh, the most popular, most important American sports of the antebellum period were hunting and fishing. In other words, two sports that are very much set uh, in the landscape. So there's, again, this, this, this striking parallel, which I think has gone unnoticed. So staying in the uh, in the antebellum period, looking at the early the early republic, you also make the point that the United States quickly gained political independence, quickly gained economic independence, but cultural independence was slow in coming in this period, and this was particularly apparent, you argue, in looking at both sports and art. That's right. Um, Americans in the colonial period and in the antebellum period played a lot of cricket but one problem with cricket uh, once we achieved political and economic independence was that it was so obviously English it was so clearly a, a part of rural English life and as baseball developed it was perceived as uh, as an alternative to cricket as uh, an authentically American game this this desire to have uh, an American game that was that was culturally different from the from the English game uh, led to a certain amount of uh, denial in that through the 19th century right up until the end of the 19th century Americans were busy denying that uh, that baseball like cricket had English origins but in fact baseball did indeed develop from uh, English children's games games like rounders uh, so that the, the game of baseball in, in other words was a, this, at the center of a, of, of a cultural controversy uh, the main point of which was to establish Ameri an American identity uh, separate from the English the, the story in art is roughly similar in that colonial painters like Benjamin West and Gilbert Stewart and John Singleton Copley were very, very much focused on English art. Uh, in fact, West became the second president of the uh, Royal Society for Art. But as the, as the century 
developed, Americans began to, to, to turn away, not so much to develop an American uh, kind of art, but to take their cues from France and Germany uh, rather than from England. And I think one of, one of the reasons for the popularity of uh, study in, in Paris or Munich or Dusseldorf was uh, that, that they were not London. Uh, and this was another way, I think, to establish uh, an independent American cultural identity. So in the post-war period, the post-Civil War period in the 19th century, uh, you talk about how there's uh, greater nationalism both in, in art as well as in sports. And uh, uh, you talk about a shift of, of themes or subject matter in, in art moving from the landscape and these pastoral scenes of hunting and fishing. Uh, so can you talk a bit about uh, uh, the sports-themed art of the post-Civil War period in the 19th century and what that showed? Well, what what happens in the post-Civil War period is that we we are lucky to have two very great painters, Winslow Homer uh, and Thomas Aikens. Homer trained in the United States, Aikens trained in Paris, but both very, very American uh, and both uh, fascinated by sports. And I... I don't know whether we can call this a an accident uh, or, or whether there's some deeper relationship. But the the fact is that the, these two very great American artists uh, were were both uh, more focused on art, on, on sports rather, than uh, just about any other artist of the period. I think that's a well an interesting phenomenon. And Aikens in particular, he was also an athlete, correct? Definitely, yeah. Aikens practiced uh, a number of sports, like his father, who was very athletically involved. Uh, when Aikens was a student in Paris at the uh, Ecole de Beaux Arts, he uh, he used to go uh, ice skating. He wrestled with the other students. It's amazing how many times in his letters home to his father he talks about a wrestling match among the students at the Ecole. And back in the the United States, he actively participated in rowing on the Schuylkill. And uh, he hunted with his father and others, sailed on the the Schuylkill and on the Delaware. And uh, when he turned to to boxing as as a subject for his pictures, he palled around with uh, the Irish-American boxers who were active in Philadelphia at the time. Uh, there are funny stories about his his close friendships with these these rough-and-tumble guys uh, and about their ad- admiration for him. Homer, his art, his, uh, his sports were hunting and fishing or fishing and hunting because he was he was much more of a fisherman than a hunter. But uh, he was very active. He uh, was a member of uh, sports clubs, hunting clubs, uh, spent a great deal of time in the Adirondacks and in Canada, fishing but, but also hunting. Uh, so both, both, of these, both of these artists, in a sense, practiced what they preached, mm-hmm. uh, practiced what they painted. Mm-hmm. So something I found interesting in looking at Aiken's paintings, uh, so he painted... Uh, 
rowers, boxers, wrestlers, uh, baseball players. So, so something interesting in looking at his work and in your discussion of his work is that he captured in his paintings all of the reasons that people are drawn to watch sports. I think that's, I think that's, that's true. It's a, an, an acute way to put it. Uh, what I argue is that his, his pictures, especially his pictures of male athletes, are athletic, they are aesthetic, and they are also, they are also uh, erotic, because I think people do sports partly for the love of competition, partly for the, the, the sensual pleasure of, of movement, uh, and partly because of some, some aesthetic impulse, some sense that this is, this is somehow a beautiful activity. Uh, and he gets, he, he gets it all. Uh, and and says as much in in uh, in his letters uh, that that he finds all of all of human activity beautiful, but the the activity of sports is, is especially especially striking for him. So you're right. Um, there there was one spot in talking about uh, one of Aiken's paintings of rowers. And is it correct that there's been a study of how people physically react when viewing that painting? That their muscles tense when they view it? Well, there there are studies, yes, of people's reactions as they as they watch uh, as they look at a picture. Sure, just as there have been uh, studies with the same kinds of uh, instruments uh, of people's uh, physical reactions as they watch a sports event, mm-hmm. and uh, the the instruments are so amazingly subtle that they can detect uh, emotional responses that the, that the that the person isn't even aware of and it yeah, it happens with when people look at art it happens when people look at a sports event uh, uh, they become they become emotionally involved even when they don't realize it so even in looking at a painting we're uh, we somehow uh, identify or feel the immediacy of the athlete straining at the at the oars yes Yes, that's true. That's when it's when it's a good painting, when when it's a picture by by Aikens or one of the, one of the other really good artists who have dealt with sports, especially with, with Aikens' pictures. You can you can see the tension of the of the of the muscles in the picture, uh, and I think well, I know that one one feels the the tension in one's own body when looking at the picture. Although, as I say, uh, one might not even be aware of it, but it's, but it's there. So I want to turn to 20th century art, and uh, we see another shift in how sports and play are presented in art. And you make a point at the beginning of this period as a result of uh, progressive era reforms there was a movement to organize and rationalize children's play, and that this was reflected in the art of the period. So, could you talk about talk about that? Yes, in the 1870s, we have traditional children's games, and one truly great picture, and that's Winslow Homer's "Snap the Whip," showing the the, the boys of a rural school playing that traditional children's game. And it's set in, 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 in the landscape, a uh, little schoolhouse, the mountains in the background, 
the boys playing Snap the Whip and uh, the girls watching from a distance, uh, not participating. Just a few years later, Pendergast, uh, Maurice Pendergast, comes along and he paints a playground uh, on the East River in New York. It's another beautiful picture, but but everything has changed. In, instead of boys playing their traditional games, uh, rough-and-tumble games, with uh, no supervision. There's a, there's a teacher in, in Winslow Homer's picture, but she's, she, she's standing off, uh, not involved, just, just watching. But in the Prendergast picture, the children have been socialized into, into proper behavior. Uh, the progressive era reformers created the, the playground association and the YMCA sports programs, a, a variety of institutions to to tame uh, wild children, especially immigrant children, uh, to rationalize their play, get them out of the streets uh, and into into carefully supervised playgrounds, and that's exactly what one sees in the Prendergast picture. I mean, it's it's a wonderful piece of art. But it's also a wonderful illustration of social change, because in that picture, everything is quite orderly. Uh, there are children there, mostly girls, uh, tidily dressed, not like the boys in the Winslow Homer picture. They're they're a pretty roughly attired group, but these are nicely dressed little girls uh, on on uh, seesaws and in swings. Uh, and there are adults there to supervise them. The, the equipment is product of technological age. It's metallic structures. Uh, in the background, you can see the industrial city. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all carefully organized and adult supervised. And Prendergast gets it all in this one watercolor. If you jump ahead a few years, not so many, you get the invention of uh, Little League Baseball, the institutionalization of adult-supervised children's sports. And then there's a picture by Norman Rockwell of a group of kids about to play a game of baseball. And they're, they're choosing sides. They're standing there. Their uniforms are too big for them. They're hanging, their, their socks are hanging down. There's a, there's a dog yapping at their heels, uh, he's going to be a part of the game too. And the interesting thing for me is that this is an imitation of Major League Baseball. They're wearing uniforms. They're 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 going to, they're going to play by the by by the rules of, of 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 Major League Baseball as they understand them. So this is just another stage in the in the evolution of of children's games and children's sports from a kind of uh, autonomy in the, in the world of traditional sports to a thoroughly organized, bureaucratically organized, uh, rationalized uh, imitation of, of the professional game. It's a wonderful encapsulation of the history of, of children's sports. So you mentioned Norman Rockwell, and you do talk about him briefly in the book, and and I want to ask about uh, Rockwell and Leroy Neiman, because these are the two artists whom sports fans 
would most likely know of. And and so how do they, you, you discuss them only briefly, but how do they fit in uh, in looking at sports and American art in the 20th century? Well, that's a problem for me because <laughs> um, I think that, that, that Rockwell sentimentalizes uh, America in, in, in his Saturday Evening Post covers, and he certainly sentimentalizes uh, children's sports. Uh, looking backwards nostalgically, uh, and I, I don't think he he adds much to our understanding of, of sports. Uh, I think an artist like like Aikens does. But I, I don't think that I can I can say that about Rockwell and Neiman. Uh, I don't want to uh, offend uh, masses of people here, but uh, I find his I find his uh, sports art uh, completely uninteresting. Uh, I, I I think that the effort to provide you know, a modernist view of uh, sports is is just oh, rather weak. I think I think his stuff is it's, it's easy it's easy to to read and not particularly stimulating. Uh, but that's you know that's that's an opinion. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure that uh, Rockwell and Neiman both have their uh, their admirers who can make a better case for them than I can. So I want to move back to uh, the early and mid-20th century, and it seems that a favorite sport among artists during that period was boxing. And so, of course, the cover of your book features uh, uh, this painting of of Joe Lewis uh, and Max Schmeling. And uh, why were artists during the the first decades of the 20th century, why were they drawn to boxing? I think the main reason is that it it was a sport that, very dramatically made manifest the the male body. I think I think that uh, Aikens for sure earlier, and Bellows for sure in the in the in the 20th century, uh, were just very very focused on athletic bodies, male bodies, and the bodies are more visible in boxing than than in most sports. Uh, I mean. Sport like swimming, uh, you can't, you can't, you can't even see the body until the, the swimmer emerges from the water. Uh, but the, the boxers are there, uh, and it's it's very basic, and, and it was a, it was an opportunity for the artist to show his skill. I mean, artists studied in those days studied anatomy, and here here was here was anatomy in action. Uh, you can look. You can you can you can see the different muscles defined. Uh, you can get a sense of the of the, of the kinetic energy uh, that's stored up and then released uh, as as the two boxers uh, struggle against each other. So it's 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 very it's very primitive in a sense uh, and very very elemental and very direct. And I I think that's what that's what did it. Um, of course, of course, Bellows Bellows did a lot of other sports as well. He did polo, he did tennis, he did he did golf. Uh, but his best work was was clearly his his, his boxing pictures. Uh, and uh, 
quite a number of other artists, many, many other artists, were drawn to the to the boxing match. Uh, I think mostly because of the of of the the, the physicality of it, the, the the obvious physicality of the sport. And you make the comment in regard to uh, one of the boxing paintings. Uh, that the image is so vivid that you can almost smell the cigar smoke and, and hear the crowd. Uh, but then when you move to the, the post-World War II period, uh, there's not that same immediacy. There's not that same connection to uh, the, the athletes who are being presented. So, uh, you know, for instance, in, in the pop art of, of Andy Warhol, you do not... You do not have the sense of smell and connection to the athletes that he uh, that he depicted in his series of, of portraits of athletes in the in the 1970s. Not in the same way that, for instance, with Aikens uh, in the 19th century. Yeah, that's that's an interesting remark. Uh, I have to think about that. My my immediate response is that the pop artists were were not that interested in the sports themselves uh, as they were they were interested in colors and shapes and the, the forms of pop art they're not generally detailed they're flat the colors are flat the shapes are simplified uh, it's, it's as if they abstracted from sports a, a kind of uh, elementary art lesson. Uh, I don't mean to say that these are not good pictures, interesting pictures, but they they don't tell us very much about sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think it's no mistake or no accident that that, that, that Warhol's ten athletes, Muhammad Ali and Dorothy Hamill and others, that these that these that these ten athletes are not shown in action. Uh, they're just they're just portraits, and they they look stylistically very much like his his other portraits: Marilyn Monroe, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Elvis Presley. None of none of these none of these portraits show people in action. So that Warhol is he is he is using athletes. He is referring to the sports. But he's not really—he's not really painting sports. Uh, he's painting portraits of, of athletes. And here I want to ask something uh, that's—that is not in the book. Uh, you mentioned at one point the statue of Tommy Smith and John Carlos by uh, Ricardo Vallea, which is at uh, the statue is at San Jose State University. But you point out that the statue will never be as well known as the photograph of Smith and Carlos giving the the black power salute at the 68 Olympic Games. But you were deliberate in choosing not to discuss photography as art in the book. Uh, So looking at at photography kind of uh, surpassing art in, in shaping our visual understanding and our, and our memories of sporting events um, you don't present them here in the in the book as, as works of art why was that well I decided at the outset to limit myself mainly to painting and sculpture more painting than sculpture and not to deal with photography 
or films. And the, the reason was mainly practical. There are billions of photos and millions and millions of sports photos. And uh, I, I, I couldn't imagine including photography without, without doubling or tripling the length of the book. <laughs> uh, and there are also, quite literally, hundreds of, of films about sports. Uh, and again, to, to include them would have been to greatly expand the, the, the research and, and, and require a much longer book. I think that, in a sense, easel painting is, has, has perhaps had its day, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly some art historians and art critics have, have, con- have concluded that, that we don't, we don't look anymore uh, to painters to uh, show us what, what's the essence of a, of a sports contest. Uh, but to to photographers, uh, and uh, whether the, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Uh, insofar as I care deeply about about painting, I'm a little saddened uh, to see the painters leave the visual images to the photographers. But uh, there are there there are wonderful photographs. I'm speaking aesthetically now. There are there are fabulous photographs, beautiful photographs of of artists. Of, I'm sorry, of athletes, of sports events. But uh, but I just I decided that uh, I could only do so much, and and if I were to start discussing every photograph that I found moving and, and interpretively interesting, it would be endless. Can I ask you for one? Where would you where would you start in terms of a photograph of a sports event that, uh, for its aesthetics, could be counted as art, as opposed to a a, uh, a picture of an event, uh, uh, you know, capturing a moment? Well, in in my in my history of uh, women's sports, I have a picture of the great French tennis star of the nineteen twenties, uh, Suzanne Langlain, and uh, she's posed in the it's it's black and white of course and she and and she's it's it's as if she had danced and taken off into the into the air it's just a, i mean formally it's, it's just an incredibly incredibly striking picture uh, one of my favorites when i finished writing this book it occurred to me that that all of the illustrations were in the fourth section of each chapter. That's the section that is specifically devoted to sports-themed art. Uh, and that the, the other three sections, the, the overview and the sports history and the, and the art history, had no illustrations. And so then I decided, well, I'll put in a few illustrations of, of sports and a few illustrations of art that has nothing to do with sports. And when I did that, I chose as one of my examples uh, a picture of Billie Jean King, an- another picture that I use in my history of women's sports. Uh, and, and she's too, she's, she's almost diagonal across the photo. Uh, she's in the air uh, swinging her racket, and it's just, it's just a beautiful picture 
aesthetically. So I, I, I sneaked it in uh, <laughs> into the section on, on sports as an illustration. But it's, it's, it's really an aesthetically wonderful photograph. Um, there are others. I, I chose Jesse Owens uh, at the 1936 Berlin Olympics as illustration. Not, not to talk about it as, as a work of art, but of course that photograph is a work of art. So I, I, I have it there, but I don't talk about it. I, I just use it as illustration and, and trust that the reader will look at this picture and, and, and feel how beautiful it is. So in looking at sports and art today, and, and this is the age of, of art as installation, of performance art, uh, you stress that there are still more similarities between art and sports than one might expect. So what similarities do you see in, in uh, postmodern art and sports? Well, the thing that struck me and fascinated me was the way in which both sports and art seem to have a, a kind of existential crisis. People be, began, in large numbers, asking, well, what is sports? What is art? And, and, and that's, that's interesting, that, that both of these forms of expression should, should enter into a kind of crisis, that the, uh, the crisis in sports has, has, has taken a turn in which people have have radically rejected uh, the, the kinds of sports that have developed during modernity. That is, people have sports sports critics have rejected the the, the structures, the forms, the the, the the conventions of modern sports, and, and call for a return to the pre-modern world of play and. In art, some people see the, the the installation as a as a radical revision of what it what we mean by art. And I think I think that's interesting. I, mean, I, I don't know the answers to these questions. What is what what is art? What are sports? I have my my notions. Uh, but what what interested me in, in writing this book is that is that both art and sports at the same time. Uh, late 19th, late twentieth century, uh, had this this existential crisis. Uh, call it an ontological crisis. It's just what is it? What is it that we're talking about? Uh, what's a sport and what isn't? What's art and what isn't? Uh, I think. Well, I have my answers to these questions. But uh, as I say, what what fascinated me was that these questions became so salient. People began to to, to ask them uh, more insistently. Well, and in the recent past. So we're almost out of time, and I want to ask: uh, Do you have a favorite painting in the book? Oh, what a hard question! <laughs> uh, I don't know that I can answer that. My tendency is to say Aiken's Max Schmidt in a single skull, but there's. There's a painting that I'm very excited about, and 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 very fond of, and very pleased that I found it and in, included it. Um, it's it's Leslie uh, Cutter's 
autobiographical art history. Uh, it's an acrylic on burlap uh, from 1978, and it shows a concert singer, which is an allusion to uh, Aikens. In fact, it's based on Aikens' portrait, the concert singer. There's a statue of Queen Hatshepsut, mm-hmm. and then crouched between the two is the great black baseball player, uh, Josh Gibson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the three are together in this picture, and I take that to mean that they are all somehow doing the same thing. They, the artist, the sculptor, the baseball player, they're all, they're all there uh, ex- expressive of something. And what amuses me or what pleases me about this picture is not only its aesthetic quality, which I think is superb, but also the fact that, that the painter, uh, Leslie Cutter, is, uh, is relatively unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw the picture, I was excited by it, I found out uh, which gallery had shown it, I asked the gallery to give me the uh, address of the painter and I tracked her down and I wrote to her and told her that I wanted to use her painting in a book on sports and American art uh, in which the, the, the major figures were Winslow Homer and Thomas Aikens and, and George Bellows. And of course she was, uh, she was pleased. And I'm, I'm pleased to have uh, discovered someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I told you when we started this conversation that one reason that I liked the the, uh, the cover picture is by Robert Riggs is that, that he is an undervalued painter. So uh, I can look at this book and, and say, in, in some sense, in some small degree, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, doing, my, I'm doing my bit to, uh, to revise the canon of American mm-hmm. art and, and, and give some credit to, uh, to artists who have been under, undervalued. Mm-hmm. In, in um, corresponding with Couture, did she talk about the, the choice of figures? Why Josh Gibson at all? Did she explain the, the painting to you? Um, that's curious. No, I didn't, I didn't talk about it with her. Uh, I, I might have, uh, but I was just excited to, 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 find, the, to, find, the, to find the picture and, and, uh, and present it to the reader. Hmm. So I read in an interview that you uh, you said that this was going to be your last book. Is that is that really the case? I I swear that's the case. <laughs> uh, I've you know I've been at it for uh, well more than for, more than forty years, and uh, I want to, I want to read more. I want to spend more time looking at pictures. I want to spend more time listening to music. And uh, I can I can keep busy reading what uh, what other sports historians have, have have done and are doing, but uh, well we'll see. I swore that my previous book was the last one, and it, <laughs> and it turned out to be the next to the last. So if you're going to spend time reading reading other people's works, maybe you can uh, in closing give us some advice. Uh, and based on the long bibliography you've compiled, what what recent book in sports history would you would you recommend to us? Ooh, that's hard. 
Um, the first book that comes to mind is by Christopher Young, and it's a study of the 1972 Munich Olympics, kind of social, political uh, study in, in places that the games within the development of the, uh, the post-war Federal Republic of Germany uh, and, and sees the 1972 games as, in some way, as significant for Germany as the 1936 games in, in Berlin. Uh, I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't off the cuff give you the title. But it's uh, it's it's Christopher it's Christopher Young, and as as they used to say in in baseball, uh, you could look it up. <laughs> All right. Well, if this is truly then your last book, then it, then it's been a privilege to have you on the program to. Uh, uh, to talk about it. So um, once again, as I said, it's it's a handsome book. It's enjoyable to look at uh, in terms of, of course, it's always fun to look at pictures. And uh, uh, you, I, I particularly enjoy your discussions of uh, individual works of art. One, my favorite painting um, is the Bellows painting of of the Dempsey Furpo fight, um, and and. You know, since I've, I was a kid, I've been drawn to that painting. And in reading your uh, interpretation of it, it, it finally made sense in terms of why I've, I've always uh, been drawn, uh, you know, to look at it and, and look closely. So, so I appreciated the book for that, and and also just the the larger points you make about uh, uh, history and art and these parallel histories. Uh, uh, I saw them. You made the argument that we can. We can view them in parallel, and, and I agree. It, it was really insightful. So I enjoyed the book very much, and, and thank you for coming on the program. Well, thank you very much for putting up with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Alan Gutman, author of the book Sports and American Art, from Benjamin West to Andy Warhol, published in 2011 by the University of Massachusetts Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from food and popular music to law and sociology. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and read more books.